Beginning, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we've been dealing with um, anti-heroes, people who step outside of communities, who don't belong. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, all belong outside of their communities. Achilles, at the very beginning of the tradition, he stepped outside of that world, so he no longer measured himself by the standards with which everybody else measured their lives. Okay? That's true of Helena in some ways. It's true of Portia in some ways. Um, it's true of, certainly, of um, Hester. Okay? She's an outsider. She's an outcast. Everybody in that community, most everybody in that community, disdains her. She's a repugnant figure. And yet it's through her, partly, that that community is transformed. So one of, the, one of the things that we've seen in almost so many of the works that we've been dealing with is that the major figures are anti-heroes. They're not these people who are glorified because they're realizing the ideals of a community. Very often they're realizing something that's in tension or in conflict with those communities. And that's the case here. And I'm, I want to come to that in a minute. Remember, in the opening chapter, Hawthorne's talking about Hester emerging from that jail. He hands us the flower. And he asks us to wonder whether that flower bush didn't spring up when the sainted Anne Hutchinson was exiled. In lots of ways, Hester's like Anne Hutchinson. She's an outsider. And what we're seeing is that most of the people in the community look down at her because she stands outside of their beliefs. They're ready to condemn her. So in almost every work we've read from the beginning, Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we can go through, Mink, um, we've been shown communities who, who live according to certain codes of behavior and who look at people who don't conform to those codes as outcasts, mis, um, misfits, things like that. So hold, just hold that thought in your mind. The question that came to me, we're so often ready to judge people if somebody comes out of the ghetto. I really think about this a lot. If somebody comes out of the ghetto and he's been raised according to Baptist beliefs, he had, his parents, he has no way of relating to what we would call the natural law tradition. That, that reason can help us do things in a better way, um, that manners aren't just conventions, that virtues are not just conventions, they're real, they help us become better people. If you've grown up without that help and faith elevates you above the, the natural order, by what are you going to judge your life? You don't have any help in the natural order. So in so many of the works, we've been dealing with that kind of attention, and we're dealing with it here, okay? So I just want to leave you with that question. Um, our church asks us to be careful of the judgments we make, because so often the judgments we make are flawed. They're, they're not often made in charity or in wisdom. Um, and we're dealing with those with those realities here in this book. So. so going back, quick review. St. Thomas said the most important for us, the most important thing for us to do is to learn to see what's there. Now clearly to an empiricist, somebody who's been raised in an empiricist mind, what's there 
He's only what he sees with his senses. For somebody to talk about miracles or God present, he would say, it's stupid, are you kidding? Show me God. So to empiricist, it would be whatever's present to the senses. We've seen in these poets, every single one of these poets is not only faithful to what's present to the senses, Achilles taking out his sword and cutting off somebody's head, or you know, Hester picking up Pearl and walking through the marketplace. Or, but every poet has showed us that um, woven in <clears throat> to this surface of empirical facts, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, is what we can call um, the action of the spirit. The poet is truthful to the causalities of our natural world, but he's also true to the causalities of the work of the spirit. So he can see in a sequence of event the spirit doing something, working with man. Does that mean he has to be visible? No. Remember Mink Snopes, when Mink was released from jail, circumstance after circumstance after circumstance kept closing down on him, and it kept opening up again and again and again. I can remember saying to you, when you have a half a dozen circumstances following one on top of the other, can you pass it off as circumstance anymore? No. At some point you have to say, at some point you have to say, we have to consider whether there isn't something else there. We just can't automatically close it down because then we're not, I don't think we're using our minds very well. We, we have to ask other questions. So. And we've been seeing that true of every play we've read. There's miraculous things going on in All's Well and Merchant of Venice. Um, and there's, gonna be, there's miraculous things happening here. So, When Thomas says we have to learn to see what's there, we have to be careful because we know we can bring beliefs to what we do that can blind us, keep us from seeing what's actually there. Okay. Um, I recall too that, um, that the call of the church for us is to practice virtues. The natural virtues are justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Those are the things we're supposed to practice. We see them almost in every play in Shakespeare because those are real things for Shakespeare. In the modern world, the modern world is nominalist. It's, it's in names that doesn't believe in these things. The modern world doesn't believe in those things anymore. Um, for Shakespeare, virtue is real. Portia was a virtuous person. Those are natural virtues. Those are things that we can um, work at to become better. But we also believe, according to our faith, that there are things called supernatural virtues. Um, faith, hope, and love. Those are things we can't... Um, we just can't call on on our own powers. Those are gifts from God. The way, the way they become a part of our lives is by offering ourselves humbly to open to them. And I reminded everybody last week that um, one of the ways in which those virtues differ from the natural virtues is they're supernatural, so they're beyond the power of this world. They help us to do things we couldn't do without God's help. Love, as a supernatural virtue, is not love until you have a reason for not loving somebody. It's exactly then that we're asked to love, the way Christ did. Hope isn't hope until there's no reason for hoping anymore. That is, hope isn't real until things are hopeless. It's exactly then that we're asked to hope. That's why they're called supernatural virtues. Faith isn't faith um, 
um, until we have no reason to hold our faith anymore. It's exactly at those moments when reason is inadequate to deal with those things that we're asked to live those things. That's why in so many of the plays, the works that we've been reading, there's this supernatural element working in the play because it's showing a supernatural order. It's showing people capable of loving when they don't have a reason to love, like Helena, or hoping when they don't have a reason to hope, or having faith when they don't have a reason to have faith. It's exactly when we have no reason for doing those things that we're called to do them. That, that, that opens us to a divine order. And one of the things that we've been seeing with the works that we've been reading is, is the action of those virtues. Okay. Um, remember, we've talked about this. The Catholic Church is, is different from other churches and, and the Protestant churches in two major ways. One is it's universal. It, it, national ethnic differences don't get in the way of people. And the other is that it's sacramental. Um, um, our belief is that Christ is working through the sacrament, so a divine help is being given to us. Confession, communion, marriage, all of those things. When the Puritans came here, so, so when the Puritan, Puritans came here, they were living out some of the doctrines that were put in motion with the great reformers, Calvin, Luther, Rupert, and others. By the time they got here, they had they had they were so dissatisfied with the other reforms, the Presbyterian, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, and the what am I missing, Anglicans? Because they didn't they thought they didn't go far enough in their reforms. So they came here hoping to live a pure life. Where where their relationship with God was more immediate. They didn't get they didn't allow these other things to get in the way. What they, what they called rituals, the superstitions of the Catholic world. All these rituals that Catholics go through. One of the interesting things that's going to be at the center of this work, and we're going to look at it tonight in the middle of this work, is what happens when you take confession out of a person's life? That'll mean more when we get to the scene that I'm thinking of right now. Um, so remember, when the Puritans came here, they, they were devoting their lives to what they believed was the most important thing that would purify their lives with Christ, and that was their faith in Him. Sola fidea, faith alone. And their trust in the Bible, their belief that the Bible was the only authority for their lives. When they came here, they were united in that belief. But when they came here, divisions immediately surfaced. And the major division that we looked at the last couple of weeks was between what's called the um, um, free grace people, Anne Hutchinson was one of them. She believed that grace was, lived, was given freely and that once you received it, you are no longer bound to the laws of the temporal order. That if you lived your life according to the Holy Spirit, you would be living the scriptural life. The other people believed in faith, but they believed that the evidence of that faith was conformity to the church. You showed that your faith was real by entering the church and conforming to its laws. So it was on the basis of that, those divisions that the majority of the people took Anne Hutchinson and others to, um, to trial and finally either, I mean, eventually they're going to execute the witches, but they exiled Anne Hutchinson and others. I think Hawthorne admires her. Um, he calls her saint at Anne Hutchinson in that opening chapter. But that's the division. 
And, and I mentioned two things just to underscore them again tonight before we start. One is that even though the Puritans thought of themselves as, um, um, as becoming humbler because they were practicing a more pure faith, as a matter of fact, what they did led them to magnify their own wills because they really believed they were doing God's will. Everything was predestined. They were just following God's will. So they were far more adamant and, and as we see in the book, far more given to self-righteousness in the judgments they make on each other. Because everything they, if somebody, if somebody, remember, the proof that your faith was real was your entering the church and conforming to its laws. So anybody who didn't conform seemed outside of those laws. They seemed to be in sin and one of the damned, one of the predestined damned. So anybody who wasn't conformist, um, raised a serious flag for all of them, okay? That's why Anne Hutchinson was exiled. So they believed that they were doing God's will, um, and what we see is, is this hypertension, that they're so sensitive to sins, and there's also this inclination to self-righteousness, to be very judgmental, because they really believe they're acting for God, on God's behalf. Um, wait one second. And symbolism. Um, remember, it was a big thing. We've seen it. I, I pointed out a number of times that um, that Hawthorne is writing partly as an allegorist because what he's doing is going back to a Puritan way of life that turned reality into black-white. Saved to the end. You can imagine how much that simplifies everything to look at the world that way. It makes it easier to judge because there's the... The, the saved and the damned, the saved show that they're saved by conforming to the rules of the church. Anybody who's a nonconformist is putting his life at risk. So that very way of living um, encouraged an allegorical way of looking at it, simple black-white. Um, things are signs. Hester's A is a sign of the sin that's typical of somebody who's put himself at odds with God. That's why she's ostracized. And I suggested other signs in the, you know, in the book that we went through. Remember when Hester and uh, Pearl were standing before that male armor and the governors, they looked at the, the, the image of the letter that obliterated everything, it eclipsed everything else. All there was with the letter. That's a sign of the way in which sin is magnified. It's given this undue importance to this community. It's, it's, it's greater than anything else. And you know from the readings that Hawthorne's constantly talking about things being emblems or signs of a thing. Because signs mean there's a meaning in that thing itself, it can be the A, but there's other meanings as well. And the way he writes is always suggesting that something more is going on. There's something more there in these signs. Um, And we talked about the talk, um, Hawthorne's use of multiple possibilities. Remember when they, when the, in the marketplace, all of the women were looking at Hester on the scaffold, and we got all these different points of view. And um, I'm going to show some today. You can't read the book without coming to passages where Hawthorne is showing people looking at something and coming away with a variety of opinions, interpretations of that thing. And I just want to say one more thing that I didn't say last week. Why would he do that? Because he does it constantly. You can't read a chapter in which he doesn't do that. 
He'll be describing something, then he'll give you multiple interpretations of that thing. When Dimsdale's described, it'll say, all these different people see him as this, and they differ. Or when he's describing Chillingsworth and his background, they'll say, some people thought he was this, other people thought he was this, and others thought he was this. Why does he do that constantly? I'm not aware of, I can't think of another writer who does it as much, honestly. Because it's more than black and white. It wants to show that there's a gradation of yep. things. If, if, I mean, imagine this. If you're raised in a culture, as Hawthorne was, this black and white Calvinistic culture, and you're, you're given to this simplistic black-white black, white way of making judgments, it's this and this, what would be the effect of reading a book in which you were, your mind was constantly presented with scenes in which you had to look at a number of possible interpretations of that thing? It would, it would make your mind begin to question, am I seeing it right? Is there more to see? Am I missing something? So Hawthorne's doing so much to, to answer this black-white world that, that he's a product of. We've talked about that. Remember in the beginning he said he's ashamed of what his ancestors did. He's going to take that sin on himself. What he's doing in the book is partly an attempt to answer. And one last thing. Remember, I asked this question. To me it goes so directly to this notion of symbolism. Um, when the book starts... In that opening chapter, I just want to go back. Uh, remember, there are two institutions that are fundamental to the founding of a, of, a, of a people. One is a prison, and the other is graveyard. Sin and death are two facts of people. You can't escape them. Crimes are going to be committed. People are going to die. In that opening chapter... Go back to it's page 42. Um, the rose bush by strange chance has been kept alive in history, but whether it had been merely survived out of the stern old wilderness so long after the fall of the gigantic pines and oaks that originally overshadowed it, or whether, as their fair authority for believing, it had sprung up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson. I'm so taken by his sense of her. As she entered the prison door, we shall not take upon us to determine, finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. On the page before that, he said... Um, such unsightly vegetation which evidently found something congenial in the soil that so early born the black flower of civilized society, a prison. So the prison is likened to a black flower and he hands us a flower from this flower bush and I asked you, I think I did, didn't I? Yeah. Did any of you feel a flower in your hand when you read that sentence? Empirically, sensually, um, did you feel a, a flower being passed from Hawthorne to you? No. What's he doing with that symbol? Because he's doing something writers don't do. He's taking a fact within the narrative 
and treating it as if it's a part of our own reality. Here, I'm giving you a flower. Artists don't do that. They protect the, art, the artistic independence of the work, the separateness between us and the work. But here he's saying, I'm giving you this flower. It's a black flower, and it relates immediately to the prison house, too, this, the importance of sin in this world. What's he doing? I think he's, I think he's suggesting through what the French symbolists would have understood by this, that work is not simply an independent work that has an objectivity outside of us. It is a living thing that we take within us. And I know that's true for all of us. You, we all take medications. We all read things. If you're taking Plato's Cave seriously, you know that most of the things that form our mind are those books in that cave. Grew up in an Islamic society, the books you read are going to change you. If you grew up in a Jewish society, if you grew up somewhere else, the books we read enter us. They shape us. They're living. So what we read matters. Faulkner is only, I mean, Hawthorne's acknowledging that here. What he's passing on to us is something that I think he thinks is a thing of spirit could help <coughs> help us in the way that we see and feel, particularly with respect to these sin and grace, okay? Because those are the great themes. What's at the center of this book is this, is this whole mystery of sin and grace in our life. So those are just, those are the background things, okay? Mark, um, a couple of weeks ago when we saw you last, you, I think you were shaking your head when I used the word romance, and I think everybody's clear you've missed a couple of times, but... By romance, I don't mean, people in literature don't mean um, a story about a couple, you know, a man and a woman dating or going out or fighting or doing whatever couples do. Um, romance, in liter literary terms, means stories that have an improbable aspect to them, very often miraculous. So Shakespeare's last plays are called romances, Pericles, Winter's Tale, Twelfth Night. You can say that there's a quality of romance to a lot of the literature that we've been reading. Um, because in a romance work of literature, something improbable comes into the work. It's a part of the plot. Something miraculous, something strange. And we know from the beginning, he's handing us a black flower. Those things don't happen in most works of literature. Hawthorne's inviting us into another word, world. And remember, that, that I mean, this is so important. We've stressed this now. One of the reasons for doing the Custom House chapter, in the Custom House chapter, he spends as much time as he does there to locate us in an actual historical fact. Anne Hutchison is an actual historical figure. Winthrop, who's going to die in just a couple chapters, was an actual governor. Bellingham, all of them are historical figures. So he's doing everything he can to make it hard for people to dismiss his book the way critics did, because they thought, how stupid, these things don't happen. Because the, remember I've said this before, the modern mind, this is not, this is not a acquaintance, the modern mind is rationalistic. It, it, it doesn't rest on a faith. And the tendency of the modern mind is to put things down, to debunk, to criticize, to find fault. Iago's, one of Iago's central lines was, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. That's Iago, and you know his mind. 
The modern mind tends to debunk, tends to find fault. It's not, it's not a mind given to loving or bringing love and justice together. That's been the great, one of the great qualities to almost all the literature that we've been ringing, reading. Portia was a great figure. How do you bring justice and love together? Not one or the other. The modern mind is debunking, tends to criticize, tends to find fault. Chillingworth is the great exemplar of the modern mind. Okay. So by romance, Hawthorne's not writing a love story between he's dealing with things that have a mysterious aspect that, that he doesn't want explained away. So he goes to the pains that he does in the custom house because he wants to locate us in that world. It's historic, it's real. I mean, the people he's describing, if you know anything about politics of the time, you know that that's, I mean, the custom house people who got hired there did nothing. It was a, what do you call it, civil service job. It's, you know, once you're in, you can't get fired, you just, you, you go to sleep. All they cared about was eating and sleeping. And, but remember, towards the end, he did two really important things. One of them is um, he, des he described finding this packet with this red garment. And it set in motion this question about who this figure was, Hester Prynne. Who was she? And it's then that he describes the differences between naturalistic literature, what we call classical realism, Jane Austen, Dickens, you know, and romance. Moby Dick is a romantic piece of literature. That's why most people hated it. They, all, they hated Melville. They hated Hawthorne. They said, this is stupid. Whales don't do this. I mean, it's the modern mind, empiricist mind, black-white. It's like the fundamentalist mind, black-white. This is the world. This is the way it is. So on the one hand, we've got empiricists who say there's nothing there but the senses. And there's the fundamentalist who says there's biblical things in the senses, but the two belong to different categories. Hawthorne and Melville were writing to hold on to both. That's why their works are um, criticized as much as they are, and that's why they're is as important as they are. So let me stop. We're gonna. I want to look at the chapters. Any any questions about? I had a question back here that didn't get answered. You said, "Wait a minute." No, Mark was. He whispered to me, "Romance doc." Yeah, he, oh. told, he told me to. Oh, tell him. okay. Any, any. Well, in my mind, the Puritans were a very tiny, small set. Everyone thought they were nuts when they were over in. No, they had to move to the Netherlands because they couldn't fit in. So they're very tiny, small. When I think of the founding, I do not think of the Puritans as well. That's it, because that's they're very factious. And in the Northeast, when I grew up, not. Wasn't yeah. Baptists. Baptists were Southern Baptists. Yeah, but you grew up two hundred years later. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. But when the when you think about the founding, all of those people with Declaration of Independence, I don't think any of them were Puritans. A lot were. But, lot but were, yeah. We, but, just, I'm just saying this is a, a small portion. Yeah. I don't consider it the how this country was founded by them. I don't. They're all still in Massachusetts. Yeah, let me just historic. I mean, I, I know from the history. I mean, I, that this is a small portion, but by and large, the foundings that took place there were products of the Reformation, largely. There were Catholic communities that came over. In, remember, I said this. This is historically. I'm not exaggerating. I don't want to. I just want to 
make a generalization because I think it's true. They are a small representative, but they represent a much larger body. The Calvin's beliefs were dominant then. In the South, you've got a plantation economic founding, radically different. One of the interesting things is that Protestant mentality has informed our country, America, it's a Protestant world, both North and South. Um, and even if people have turned away from their religious beginnings, and they, they have, particularly in the North, they still hold on to that black-white mindset. And it, you can see it in a dominant way in the South. I mean, the Bible Belt and we know, I, I thought, this is a strange thing, I thought, honestly, when I came to Texas, I thought Calvin was dead. If anybody would ask me, I would have said, I, I was just shocked to find out he wasn't, how alive he is in the South. Um, so it was, a, it, was, it, rep, it was a small body, yes, and there, were, there was a greater diversity of beliefs, but by and large, the spirit for so many of those people was largely Protestant, and for many of them, Calvinistic. Lutheran, Calvinistic. Um. Oh, but then we had immigration, and you had people coming from all yep. over the world. So then it kind yes. of, kind of like dissipated, maybe. Maybe I don't think it dissipates, but it, it certainly gets richer and more multifaceted. But that quality is that quality is very much American, that black-white. Um, and and I, you know, I, I I really don't want to push this right now, but this what I call the Whig view of history, because it's true if you look at histories for the last three hundred years. If you watch the histories being written, or read the histories being written in Shakespeare's time, and follow the histories coming forward, what dominates the view of history over the last 350 years is what historians would call the Whig view of history. They tend to present the winning side. It was true in Shakespeare's side, in, in time, and afterwards. This idea that the, that, that the winning side, and, and put it together with our notions of evolution, that this winning side affirm something, you know, that, that that's a way of life, that Whig view of history. I mean, you can go back, you can go back to the Protestant times when the, our, when the England defeated the Spanish Armada. That was a sign that the, they were on God's side. Winning is important in America because it's taken as a Protestant piece of evidence that you're on the right side. That's as true. I, I'm, not, I mean, not, I'm not a liberal. But can anybody think about politics in the last three years without thinking winning, 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 winning? Because the assumption behind that is if you're winning, you're on God's side. Or God is on your side. Yeah. I don't want to go there. That, those qualities are deeply embedded in us as a people, deeply a part of who we are. Historians write about it all the time. Let me stop, because it's, it's obviously, I mean, you're right, it, it's... it's it's a very complicated thing. But I don't think it's, I don't think I'm being unfair in saying those are dominant qualities in us as a people. We, we have seen it in every great writer we've read. And they had no axes, no agendas. You know, if you go back and read the histories, if you go back and read all the, the writers whom we haven't even you know, touched on, you, you're going to find the same thing. It's very American. Let's start. Um, turn to page 117. I'm sorry, 117 or 170? 117. I want to just very briefly look at characters as types because remember, I, um, one of the things that Hawthorne is doing that sets him apart is he's writing as an allegorist. 
Um, that one thing represents another. It's a sign of something else. And that's as true of the characters themselves. Hawthorne isn't a character in the story, but he's a character insofar as he's the one who's describing the custom house experience and doing everything he can to make that packet with the red cloth in it real. He's the one who hands us the, the flower. So he's, he's a character in the story, even if he's 200 years, 250 years later in time. So it, um, we're encouraged to think of the characters as types. So let me go through these. It seems to me that Hawthorne, remember, in the, in the, this is factual to the story, Hawthorne presents himself as going to sleep. He has not written in three years. He's become complacent in his job, so he stopped writing. And he has that description of the characters um, shaming him because they said, you've sold out. It's a little bit like Judas selling out. He'd, instead of doing the things that he really should be doing, he's settled into this life. Um, but he's the one who's writing the story. On page 117, chapter 11, Hawthorne's describing uh, Dimsdale and says on the bottom of 117, while thus suffering under bodily disease, gnawed and tortured by some black trouble of the soul and given over to the machinations of his deadliest enemy, Dimsdale had achieved a brilliant popularity in his sacred office. He won it indeed in great part by his sorrows. His intellectual gifts, his moral perceptions, his power of experiencing and communicating emotion were kept in a state of preternatural activity by the prick and anguish of his daily life. He's so pricked in his conscience, like Hester, that he carries the sensitivity around, and it changes what he, all that he does with people. There were scholars among them who had spent more years in acquiring abstruse lore connected with the divine profession. So there are lots of people around him who are great intellects, going over 118 at the top. There were men, too, of a sturdier texture of mind than his, and endowed with a far greater share of shrewd, hard iron or granite understanding which duly mingled with fair proportions of doctrinal ingredient constitutes a highly respectable, efficacious, and um, an amiable variety of the clerical species. There were, uh, here it is, multiple possibilities again. There were others again, true saintly fathers whose faculties had been elaborated by weary toil among their books. So we've got all these classes of men um, who are distinguished by their scholarly, intellectual abilities. We know that they were the ones responsible, largely responsible for the founding. They were the Protestant um, doctors. They knew the, the central doctrines of the Protestant belief, and those were shared across the seaboard. Luther, Calvin were the, were the intellectual sources of the greater majority of those men. All that they lacked, so he's describing all of these people, all that they lacked was the gift that descended upon the chosen disciples at Pentecost in tongues of flame, symbolizing, it would seem, not the power of speech in foreign and unknown languages, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. These fathers, otherwise so apostolic, lacked heaven's last and rarest attestation of their office, their office the tongues of flame. They would have vainly sought had they ever dreamed of seeking to express the highest truths through the humblest medium of familiar words and images. 
Their voices came down afar indistinctly from the upper heights where they habitually dwell. And he says, Dimsdale belongs, belongs to this last group. It was by virtue of the fact that he carried these sins and the anguish that he felt that he was able to use words the way he did. So, um, um, and it seems to me, by, um, by implication here, extrapolation, we, that Hawthorne belongs to the same group. That he's different from other people in his ability to use words um, that the common man can um, experience. He said, remember, it would seem not the power of speech in foreign and unknown language, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. Remember, what, what Hawthorne and Mello had in common was what they both called the brotherhood of sin. That they were speaking to ordinary human beings dealing with sin and grace, ordinary things like that. So what set Dimsdale apart, and I also think what set Hawthorne apart from other people, is this prophetic quality, what he calls here the tongues of fire. So Hawthorne is a type of prophet. He's a poet. He's speaking of the brotherhood of sin. He's speaking of something that's true in his mind for all men. Um, and he feels it sensitively, or he wouldn't write as he does. Hester is a type of woman. She's given to her emotions, her heart. Um, Dis Dimsdale, as I said, is masculine intellectual. Chillingworth is an image of the modern intellectual mind, too ready to find fault. That's what he does. You know that from your reading. Um, he, starts, he, he starts out as a good man. He's a good physician. He's, he's, he wants to cure people. He wants to help. But once he realizes that his wife, Hester, has committed this sin, he sets his mind on discovering who the father is with one purpose. He wants to expose him and shame him. So the whole spirit of everything he does is to find fault. He's like Iago, to hurt, to wound, to tear down. So Chillingworth is an image of the modern intellect that want, so and, and it's important, there's no sense in him of any connection with God. He's an image of the modern mind dissociated from God, no faith, but starts out as a desire to cure, ends up turning on itself, reversing itself, and becoming a desire to find evil and strike at it, to hurt it, to wound. His whole motive is revenge. He wants to get back to find out who this man is. He's cuckold. Huh? Yeah, except cuckolds usually are innocent. You know, they're stupid. Well, I'm just saying, his wife slept with somebody else. He was anybody else. I mean, people can have those feelings of, well. Yep. Yeah, but lots of cuckolds don't want to. No, no, actually, he takes it to the extreme. But yeah. I'm saying at the time, yep. adultery is really looked down on. Yep. Although it's not uncommon, we know. No. Um, okay. The great theme of the work. Hawthorne himself says it's a tale of frailty and sorrow. What's at the center of this work is um, this relationship between sin and grace. And the reason it's so important is because it was so important to the Protestant divines. The theology f um, for this country was to get away from the corruptions of a Catholic Europe, to found this city on a hill, and to do it in a way 
that was different because it had a different understanding of sin and grace. Just a, a side thought here. Um, we know that the, the, these Puritans that were our original founders, our ancestors, believed that man um, had his beginnings in Eden. Those were our beginnings. All of them accepted it. So they had an understanding of man um, as having high origins. Our beginnings are high. If you go back to the Renaissance and the Renaissance men who were working, it doesn't matter, science, literature, they look back at the Christian Middle Ages and back to the pagans, and all of those men had one thing in common, um, most great thinkers. They all believed that man had high beginnings. The pagans believed that men came from what they called a golden age, it was a perfect age, that there was this state of blessedness and that man had somehow lost it. So one of the essential preoccupations of men has been from our beginnings is to understand ourselves in terms of our beginnings and try to answer the problems it's left us with, sin. That we, that we, can't, we, we can't have a good civilization unless we deal with sin and its disorders, somehow bring a justice to what we do to them. In the Christian world, it means we have to bring justice and love to answer it. Anything less um, won't answer the problems. Um, so what's at the center of this book is this concern for sin and grace. And I, I just want to repeat this for a second because it's, it's interesting to me. Because you know that once the scientific worldview comes in, the beginnings change. The beginnings, the, according to the scientific view, are, are low. We came from a, a big bang or apes or, you know, we evolved from something. So we've got a radical tension, conflict between two worldviews. Our beginnings in one are high, the beginnings in the other are very low. One's very degrading, one's ennobling. They're in tension. And um, they're particularly in tension with Chillingworth. When you, if you go through the story and, and read the passage dealing with Chillingworth, you know that he's a physical scientist, he's a doctor. Um, I'm gonna read this chapter because it's a little bit troubling. It, it's one of the central chapters of the book. When he goes to Dimsdale and offers his help, he does it with the idea that he can't help Dimsdale unless he knows the deepest secrets of Dimsdale's heart. And his presumption is if he knows them, he can cure them. Dimsdale gets furious with him. I mean, really angry. He leaves. I, I, I'm going to go to that in a minute. What's the problem with that? I just want to be clear because it's, center, it's central to this book. This whole thing about sin and how we answer it. The whole book is about sin and grace. What's, what's wrong with, with, according to Hawthorne, what's wrong with, with uh, Chillingworth's response, according to a Christian perspective? For a physician to say, um, I've got to know the deepest secrets of your heart if I'm going to cure them. Because so he, he will say this, he will say, most of the physical ailments that people have are manifestations of some spiritual disorder. So he's a Freudian precursor. Or I wouldn't say Freud, he's a precursor of the modern scientist, the modern doctor who, whose life rests on before Freud gets into the person, but you know. What's the problem with that for a Christian? Sorry? It leaves out God. Sorry? It leaves out God. What's wrong with that? Lots of people are going to say, so what? 
What's the problem? For a minister? Hmm? To say it to a minister? What's the problem here? There's this, there's this, here, let's look at it. Turn to 110. Say again. Chester says it's going to be about an hour and a half if you want. Wow. Sorry, repeat the question. There's a, is it an hour? Yeah, he says he just went in there. It's going to be about an hour. Take a look at 109. Dimsdale and Chillingworth are upstairs. Chillingworth, remember, has his laboratory in his room, and, the, and he's become Dimsdale's doctor. On 109, um, he's talking about these herbs that he's developing, trying to... <clears throat> to use their chemicals as a, as a source of healing. Um, and Chillingworth says he got them next to the graveyard of this man whose name wasn't even on the stone, which means probably a sinner. The bottom 108. Even in the graveyard, he said, answered the physician, they are new to me. I found them growing on a grave which bore no tombstone, no other memorial of the dead man, save these ugly weeds that have taken upon themselves to keep him in remembrance. They grew out of his heart and typify, there it is again, typify, it's a sign. I hope everybody's clear. There's that allegorical element, it typifies, it's a sign of something. They grew out of his heart and typify, it may be, some hideous secret that was buried with him in which he had done better to confess during his lifetime. That it would have been okay if he'd confessed. We're back in Hester and Dimsdale's world, right? Because Hester, we know about Hester's sin, even if she hasn't fully confessed it because she won't divulge the father. And Dimsdale, we know, doesn't. Chillingworth says, um, he, he's looking down at Pearl and saying, there's no law to her nature. Middle of 111, in heaven's, what is she? Is the imp altogether evil? Has she affections? Has she any discoverable principle of being? None, says Dimsdale, except the freedom of a broken law. They're looking down, they watch um, Chillingworth is saying that um, if he only finds out what the inner problem is with Dimsdale, he can heal it. Bottom 110. Then to speak more plainly, continue the physician, and I crave pardon, sir, should it seem to require pardon, for this needful plainness of my speech, let me ask, as your friend, as one having charge under providence, of your life and physical well-being, hath all the operation of this disorder been fairly laid open and recounted to me? Have you told me everything about yourself that you should have? It's on the assumption that he can't do as well if he's holding something back. How can you question it, he says. You would tell me then that I know all? Um, be it so, but again, he to whom only the outward and physical evil is laid open, open knoweth oftentimes, but if but half the evil which he's called upon to cure. A bodily disease which we look upon as whole and entire within itself may after all be a symptom of some ailment in the spiritual part. Your pardon once again, if I give you offense. You, sir, of all men whom I've known, are he whose body is the closest conjoined, imbued, and identified, so to speak, with the spirit whereof it is the instrument. That is because everything Dimsdale shows suggests, remember, he's frail, he's getting frailer, people are worried. They actually pushed him on um, Chillingworth because they thought, as a physician, he could help. Because most people are worried for his health, that he's going to die. He looks so frail. So Chillingworth is only saying what's obvious. 
Then I need ask no farther, said the clergyman, somewhat hastily rising. You deal not, I take it, in medicine for the soul. Go down. Um, thus a sickness, a sickness, a sore place, if we may so call it in your spirit, hath immediately its appropriate manifestation in your bodily frame. Would you therefore that your physician heal the body, the bodily evil? How may this be unless you firstly open to him the wound or trouble of your soul? No, not to thee. Now he's getting angry. Not to an earthly physician, Dimsdale says. Not to thee, but if it be the soul's disease, then do I commit myself to the one physician of the soul. If it stand with his good pleasure, can cure, or he can kill. Let him do with me, as in his justice and wisdom he shall see good. But who art thou that meddlest in this matter, that dares thrust himself between the sufferer and his God? He's going to get angry and walk out right at this point. All right, what page do you want? Yeah. It was one thirteen. Yeah, I so. What's the problem? What's the problem? Um, just to close this, because this is this is there are two crises at this part of the novel. One of them is here, because you know that Dimsdale is going to get. He's furious at Chillingworth. Ch he walks out. He feels so bad at his response that he wants to make up. And he goes back to his room. He falls asleep. Chillingworth comes in on page one. Sorry, it's on the next page. What is it? One fourteen, fifteen. One fourteen. Dimsdale's asleep. He goes. Chillingworth goes to him. Opens up his shirt, and he sees on his chest. Um, this is what's interesting. He takes the shirt. Bottom of one fourteen. But with what wild look of wonder, joy, and horror, with what ghastly rapture as it were, too mighty to be expressed only by the eye and features, therefore bursting forth through the whole ugliness of his feature and making itself even riotously manifest by the extravagant gestures which he threw up his arms towards the ceiling. Um, what did he see? Hey. Hmm? Letter A. Do we know? Does it? Well, my daughter's notes. That's what it says. <laughs> and so, is she reading this now? No, she read this in eighth grade. Oh, her book. oh. Oh no, no, eleventh grade. Sorry. He doesn't describe it, no. but the assumption is, it's and it's name. interesting. He doesn't, and I think that's deliberate. It's not. We're to understand that there's a mark on Dimsdale's breast that makes it clear that he's Pearl's father. Yeah. He's he's the one that betrayed, <laughs> cuckolded, Chillingworth. And so, and then watch what happens then, because this is one of the early Christ. This is leading up. Um, had a man seen old Chillingworth at that moment of his ecstasy, he would have had no need to ask how Satan comports himself when a precious human soul is lost to heaven and won into his kingdom. That is, from that point on, his purposes become sinister. He has only one motive: it's to destroy Dimsdale. But my question is, what's wrong with I mean, what makes Dimsdale mad here? Why is he so angry? What's the issue between these two men that makes him walk out of the room in anger? Is it because the... Sorry. No, go ahead, Doc. Is it because Dimsdale sees his physical whatever is going on with him um, as something that God has sent? For his sin, you mean as a, as a Sorry. burden, you know, like Paul had something that 
God said, live with it. A grace? Yeah. Um, form. And even though he's suffering from it, he thinks Chillingsworth is getting between him and what his God is giving him. Yeah. It, it's actually, I, don't, I don't think that's true now, um, but he's going to say that at the end. He, when Hester wants to flee, and I can't, I can't give away the ending because it's too important, but he's going to say something close to that then. I think there's another issue here because he, he says there's only one person who can cure me. There's the only one healer. Who is that? Christ. Why is he the only one? Because he's the only one who can forgive him. Because he's God. Mm -hmm. It's really go to the Pharisees. Remember that episode where Christ comes in and says, which is it easier to do to heal this man or, or forgive his sins? Mm -hmm. What was the response of the Pharisees to that moment? Outrage. Outrage. Why? Because only God can do that. Because only God can do that. Wait, by the way, this goes to a fundamental principle here at issue in this book and the Protestant world. The sacraments are gone for the fundamental spirit in here. They're gone. There's no confession. There's no Eucharist. There's no confession. And Dimsdale's going to say here later, I mean, if you're reading, you'll, you'll be sensitive to this stuff. Dimsdale will say, nobody can forgive this sin. When Chillingworth is trying to persuade him, Dimsdale will say, um, nobody can. Hester will want to flee and, you know, get away. He'll say, nobody can forgive this sin. It will be with us, I, I don't want to take it up tonight, eventually I want to say, what's the difference between this world and the Catholic world? Or a, a high Anglican or, you know, something. Ang Anglican. <laughs> Angle, Anglo-Catholic. Anglo-Catholic. Anglo um, oh, we can't do it right now. Does everybody following? Go ahead, Jeannie. Well, I think because to Dimsdale, his sin will be with him for always. Forever. He he yes. Get rid of it. Yes. He can't be redeemed. Yes. In his world. Well, but that's our world right now. Yes. Yeah. 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 And this this is a fundamentalist Protestant world, and it exists today, largely. Look at the number of faith-based movies that are coming out, and you'll find the same mindset. The sacraments are gone. Dimsdale's um, going to say, um, he said, people come to me. This is an argument with children. He said, people come to me grieving and wanting forgiveness. And, and Dimsdale offers solace to comfort. And he says, people go away relieved because they've admitted their sin. So it's not the sacrament of confession, but it's people going to him in a in a spirit of faith, opening themselves and finding consolation, you know, in what he says. But there's no question in, that in this world, there's only one person that can forgive a sin. That means when, in this world, when you sin, you carry that sin to your death. Now that's crucial. Uh, everything that's going to unfold is going to happen. I don't want to bring in a Catholic world right now, but think about the difference between going to confession and having your sins absolved. I mean, believing, believing that Christ did it. They're gone. If we don't believe that when we come out of confession, something's wrong. Because we believe that he's... Hold, hold on. He, yes. he's, he's speaking for Christ. The forgiveness is complete. That's what, it, that's, that's what the sacrament is. Here, that's not so. He is outraged that Dimsdale, because think about Dimsdale, he's a modern intellectual. He thinks that he can cure Dimsdale if he only knows his spiritual thing because he believes by doing it to the body, if he knows the sin well enough, he can get to it. 
Think about the, the religious groups today. I mean, most people find it difficult, but there are religious groups who won't go to a doctor. Yes, Christian science. Yeah, I, I don't want to go, but you know that. I mean, there are people be, be, for the same reason. The modern world has put all of its focus on the body. Doctors will almost never ask you about spiritual things because in their, we, we, since Descartes and the scientific revolution, we live in a dichotomy. Body and soul are two separate things. Anybody who had a healthy mind would know you they're together. Um, but can a, can a physician heal the soul? No. Can a priest heal the body? Not always unless he has you know, some special power. But So here at the center of the, of the novel is this crisis because Chillingworth discovers who it is and we know that he's He's an image of the modern materialist who, who is acting as, as if he can deal with a spiritual evil. And Dimsdale is angry because he knows that there's only one person that can forgive. The reason the Jews were, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were outraged when Jesus said, which is easier, to cure him or forgive his sins, they were outraged because they knew only God for, could forgive sins. So it's partly an issue here is, according to the beliefs of these people, they do not believe the sacraments have any efficacy. So when you commit a sin, it's just going back to the, where we started. The sin in this community is so dark, so grave. And what it's done is led to this black-white division. The people who are convinced that they're saved because they've accepted God, they're following the rules of the church. Those like Ann Hutchinson are out, even though she believes in God as much as the other people. That's just two very different ways of believing. But, but this, is a, this is the center of the tension, this whole issue of sin and the way that men look at it. So one of the questions to ask going forward is, what does Hawthorne do with this? Because remember, he set out in the custom house saying he's going to take this on himself. The, the story's going to end, I can't tell you, the story's going to end with something happening that I think is Hawthorne's Remember what I've said about the poets all along. The poets carry the past forward, redeeming it as they go. What does Hawthorne do at the end of this story to carry that past with, with all these beliefs that people have and the harm that they do? What does he do to transform them? What's his answer? Let me tell you, in 1987, I changed from the Baptist church to the Catholic church. And people would ask me why I did that. And this is truly what I would say. I said the Baptist church is about sin and the Catholic church is about love. That was it. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it's more complicated, but at the root of it, that's it's a big... That's, that's, big that's the basis of it. Can we go? I want to be careful of everybody's time. I want to see if we can't let out early tonight for people who want to. Can you turn to 123? So two, what I'm going to call two minor crises. Er, they're the crises in a minor code, if I can put it that way. So remember, here's the beginning. The opening problem is the adultery, Hester's adultery. The complication is the arrival of Chillingworth. 
that's going to deeply complicate it. You know that because the whole vengeance action is going to work its way into the plot. Here there are two, what I would call, crises in minor keys. They're setting up for the final crises and denouement. The unraveling, when everything gets settled. One of them is here, when Chillingsworth discovers that Dimsdale is the, um, Hester's lover and the father of Pearl. And the other one is here with Dimsdale. Um, I want to look at this. So we've seen this chapter where this whole issue of body, soul, sin and grace, sin and forgiveness. What do you do in a community? This is so important. What do you do in a community in which confession is not an option? There's no, there's no sacrament of confession. When you sin, you carry it, and you will carry it to your death. What work, what, what does it do to you? What, what does it do to your soul to have to bear that when you don't have the option of confession? And who can cure it? Chillingworth is claiming he has a cure. He can if Dimsdale will open up a... But Dimsdale gets furious because he knows that there's only one person who can cure sin. That's God. That's, that's why Christ took on our human nature so he could answer our human failings as a God. That's the extraordinary thing he did. Um, here, in chapter 12, Dimsdale is um, laboring under this sin, and he doesn't know that Chillingworth is working on him, but we know that he's becoming more and more frail. Um, his sin is weighing on him, and we have this sense that without his knowing it, it's as if somebody's working an evil on him at the same time, and it's affecting him. So one night, he goes out, um, to the center of the marketplace where the scaffold is and he goes up the scaffold. Um, page 124. A light is thrown from a window. Um, it's, a, it's a, what to call this? It's a nightmarish um, whilst Virgus, it's like a witch's Sabbath night. It's eerie and strange. Um, it threw a gleam of recognition, and here a post, there a garden fence, here a lattice window pane, there a pump. This light is bringing everything into focus. The Reverend Mr. Dimsdale noted all these minute particulars, even while firmly convinced that the doom of his existence was stealing onward in the footsteps which he now heard, and that the gleam of the lantern would fall upon him in a few moments more and reveal his long-hidden secret. So he goes to the scaffold thinking that nobody will discover him there. It's like he's vicariously accepting judgment. But he can do it because nobody's there. Suddenly a light starts appearing, bringing everything in, fo in focus, and it, make, it gives it an eerie cast of the scene. As the light drew near, he beheld with its illumined circle his brother clergyman, or to speak more accurately, his professional father, as well as highly valued friend, the Reverend Mr. Wilson, who, as Dimsdale now conjectured, 
had been praying at the bedside of some dying man, and so he had. The good old minister came freshly from the death chamber of Governor Winthrop, who had passed from earth to heaven within that very hour. This is 1649. That's an actual event. So once again, Hawthorne's locate. This is a romance. He's locating us in an actual historical event while creating the scene that has a spiritual dimension. Let me just add a moment for this because it's it, it, there's a Faulkner does this beautifully. So does Melvin. We know. I'm trusting all of us have lived through these things. That to all appearances, we go through the world like everything's under control. We're calm. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher. It doesn't matter. Whatever, engineer, whatever you are, you go to the world and everything. But there are times in your life when you've been carrying some spiritual turmoil, some burden that is almost personally overwhelming. We all know this. I've, I've been stressing this. It's one of the most important parts of literature because very often it marks a turn, the metanoia, the peripatia. That very often in the midst of these overwhelming moments, something happens. To all appearances, nobody will see it in the world. We'll just go on and everybody will think things are as they are. So the beauty of what Hawthorne's doing is we're watching a man undergo this intense, painful, spiritual crisis and nobody's there and suddenly a man comes walking along with a lantern so the part of him that he's wanted to keep secret is in danger of being revealed okay it's like the inner secret sinner that each one of us carries is about to come into the light he's going to be known for who he is he's going to be pearl's father so wilson passes without even noticing him Top of 125, a good evening to you, venerable Father Wilson. Come up hither, I pray you, and pass a pleasant hour with me. Good heavens, had Mr. Dimsdale actually spoken. For one instant he believed that these words had passed his lips, but they were uttered only within his imagination. Wilson goes on. Okay. Um, now, just to um, remember, on page 123... Um, he was so overwhelmed with what's going on in this episode, with what's happening, and for him to take the scaffolding, to, to climb up to it, um, to, to take the place where Hester had undergone shame. On page 123, when he, when he stepped up there, he let out this shriek, um, in the middle of 123, without any effort of his will or power to restrain himself, he shrieked aloud an outcry that went pealing through the night and was beaten back from one house to another and reverberated <coughs> from the hills in the background as if a company had devils detecting so much misery and terror in it had made a plaything of the sound and were banding it to and fro. It's done, he says. The whole town will awake and hurry forth and find me. Part of him wants to be exposed. He, I mean, it's like a relief of this horrible thing that he's bearing to get rid of it. So he shrieks, and part of him wants to keep it secret. Wilson comes by. He thinks he's going to be exposed. He thinks he speaks to him, but it's in his imagination. So I think, it, it's, is it clear here? It's a feverish soul. He's tortured. He's carrying the sin. Hester's born it. He hasn't. For one moment, he wants to vicariously accept punishment. Um, 
after Wilson passes, Hester and Pearl come along, 126. They were serving at the bedside of um, Winthrop's death, and as they pass, Dimdell says to them, Come up hither, Hester, thou and little Pearl, said the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale. You have both been here before, but I was not with you. Come up hither once again, and we will stand all three together. This is wonderful. Minister, says Pearl, what wouldst thou say, Dimsdale says, will thou stand here with mother and me tomorrow noontime? This is so powerful. He doesn't want to do it, though. <laughs> no. The power, I mean, this, the, part of the beauty is, oh, you know, if you've, been re if you've read through the whole novel, you, there's almost not a scene in which Pearl exists in which she doesn't put a question to Dimsdale that no adult would, and it goes right to the point. Of course. I mean, she's, she's right on. I mean, it, it's a conscience prick. There's nothing she says that doesn't go to the heart. Why are you putting your hand on your heart? Mother, have, have you met the black man in the forest? Who is Mr. Dimsdale? Will he meet us? You know, in the opens, um, 127, um, a moment longer, my child, said he, but wilt thou promise to take my hand, mother's, tomorrow noontide? Not then, Pearl, said the minister, but another time. And what other time? She's not going to let go. <laughs> At the great judgment day, whispered the, the minister, and strangely enough, the sense that he was a professional teacher of the truth impelled him to answer the child so. Then and there, now this is the truth, before the judgment seat, thy mother and thou and I must stand together, but the daylight of this world shall not see our meeting. Now you know what happens then. Um, on 128, this is interesting, Dimsdale looks up and sees a meteor, apparently. It's a flash in the sky. What we get again is one of those multiple possibilities. These various readings of what just took place. Um, 128 at the bottom, we imputed therefore solely to the disease in his own eye and heart that the minister looking upward in the zenith beheld there the appearance of an immense letter, the letter A, marked out in lines of dull red light. Not but the meteor may have shown itself at that point, burning duskily through a veil of cloud, but with no such shape as his guilty imagination gave it, or at least with so little de definiteness that another's guilt might have seen another symbol in it. Somebody was seeing something else. Just when he's looking at it, Pearl sees off in the shadows Chillingworth, and she says that she can see him. He comes to them on 1.30 and um, tells Dip Dimsdale to step down. This is the, the physician. Everything he does, he does in a sense that he's helping him. We know that everything he's doing has a sinister motive, and all he's doing is adding to his frailty. Bottom of 130. The next day, however, being the Sabbath, he preached a discourse which was held to be the richest and most powerful and the most replete with heavenly influences that had ever proceeded from his lips. Something happened to him the night before. Souls, it is said, more souls than one, were brought to the truth by the efficacy of that sermon and vowed within themselves to cherish a holy gratitude towards Mr. Dimdale throughout the long hereafter. But as he came down from the pulpit steps, the gray-bearded sexton met him holding up a black glove, which the minister recognized as his own. He says it was found on the, on the scaffolding. Thank you, my good friend, said the minister. Um, yes, it seems to me my glove indeed, 131. And since Satan saw fit to steal it, your reverence must need handle him without gloves henceforward. But did your reverence hear the portent that was seen last night? A great, redder, a great red letter in the sky, the letter A, which we interpret to stand for angel, 
For as our good governor Winthrop was made an angel in this past night, it was doubtless held fit that there should be some notice thereof. No, he says, I've not heard of it. So once again, we get multiple. Now, somebody says it was an angel. He saw a scarlet. Um, Hawthorne's showing us that, that, that people read differently, and very often they don't see what's there. Um, and Hawthorne's making us aware of that. Um, hold on. Um, page 149.50, just, I want to just pass over this because I want to set this up. Um, Hester meets with Chillingworth to tell him she's concerned for Dimsdale because his health is failing and she believes she's contributed to his decline. She's feeling guilty. She tells Chillingworth she's not going to protect his identity anymore, and Chillingworth says, do what you want. She's going to plan to meet Dimsdale on the way back from a visit that he's paying to help somebody, and the two will meet in the forest. That's going to be a major turning point, because for the first time in the novel, Hester's going to take off her letter. She will throw it away. The two will meet. They will be reunited in the forest again. What happens there is going to be crucial for um, the outcome. Um, before that happens, um, Hester and Pearl are walking together, and um, Pearl asks Hester on page 153, he says in the middle of the page, did thou ever meet the black man, mother? So every one of her questions as a child goes to the heart of some disorder. It's, it's the way children who are so sensitive to what goes on in parents. If parents are fighting, if there's a fight and they're not even showing it, the kids are going to sense it. There's just nothing they don't sense. Did thou ever meet the black man, mother, and who told you this story? It was the old dame in the chimney corner at the house where you watched last night, she said. She fancied me asleep while she was talking. She said that a thousand and a thousand people had met here and had written in his book and have his mark on them, and that ugly-tempered lady, old Mistress Hibbins, was one, and mother, the old dame, said that this scarlet letter was the black man's mark on the she says, is it true? Hester puts her off, but here's the, the point I want to make. You remember earlier in the chapter called Hester and its Needle? It describes Hester as meeting people and beginning to realize from the glance that she saw in their eyes that she was seeing in people signs of the sin that she carried. And it was a test of her faith because she thought she was losing her faith that she would suspect people of this evil. But she begins to have this sympathetic sympathy, she feels, and it actually um, leads people to start to come to her because they can trust her. So in that scene, we had a sense that um, there are more people who are living in sin who just not, who just not come out. Here, young Pearl heard, here, here's from this woman, that there were thousands of people in the forest. So once again, we have another indication that more people have met with the black man, that is, more people have committed sin than they want to let on. So here's one of the great themes unfolding. It, it, to me, it's, it goes with sin and grace. What I would call inner and outer. Inner and outer. The way Hawthorne presents these scenes is to help us to get into the interior of a world 
but he does it in a way that makes it possible for us to see how much other people live by external appearances. They judge people according to the way they look on the outside and they don't see. What Hawthorne's doing is taking us into the interior so we can see things other people don't. One of the things that we're learning is that there's some good to Hester and Dinsdale that people don't see. They think Hester's bad, they're coming to love her. They think Dimsdale's good, they don't even see his sins. So Hawthorne is teaching us to get past appearances to help us get out of this black-white way we have of relating to the world by helping us feel what these other characters feel to Dimsdale, um, Hester, and even Chillingworth. Chillingworth is an aspect of every human being. There's something in, as Hawthorne said, there's something in every human being that wants to put down. And our pride to condemn, to, you know, to get back at people who wounded us. So Hawthorne's unfolding this, this great story um, of sin and grace. What's about to happen, I think, is extraordinary. You, you've got to read the ending. Pearl, I mean, um, Hester and Dimsdale are going to meet in the forest. She's going to take off that letter. Pearl's going to get furious at her. And the two of them are going to come up with an answer on what to do with this sin. I don't want to go into it, what's going to happen. But it's really important to read that and, and because of everything that's going to follow that to the end of the book. So I, I hope you read it and I hope you enjoy it. It's really good. Well, my daughter just got through, so... Have a good confession. <laughs> Have a good confession. <laughs> Sounds like there's still long lines out there. Yeah, no. My husband's not friends with my daughter. No? What's that? No. What's that? People in this package at the line just said, yeah, long to be there, so... No, they got... Uh, <laughs> just want to send me. They got to talk about it. How are you? Everyone has a holiday. Thursday. Yes, me too. Oh, well... That just makes you think. Ah, uh, these are the people. And I put six needles in my knee. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that helped. So that makes me a candidate because of this.